Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Next Phase podcast, exploring innovations in clinical trials. My name is Blake Adams with Florence Healthcare, the host of today's podcast. And I'm excited today to be joined by Amir Lahav, head of digital R&D at Mitsubishi Pharma America. Amir, how are you today? I'm very good. I'm very excited to be here. So, Amir, if you can dive in and share a little bit about your background, who you are, and how you got to where you are today, especially what's driving your passion and interest in decentralized trials. Sure, absolutely. I um, I started my career actually as a clinical neuroscientist. Uh, I was super excited to learn about the brain and how the brain functions, and I got a special interest in actually the how the brain is shaped by our personal experiences what we do in childhood, uh, what traumas we have, but also uh, in our interactions in in daily life. For example, look at kids nowadays uh, that they are addicted to their phone. Their brain is probably shaped in a much different ways because of the digital choices that they are making every day, as opposed to uh, me when I was a kid. There wasn't much of a digital uh, stimulation around me. So um, that really drove me into into neuroscience, brain imaging. And uh, I started um, after my uh, doctoral degree, I did a postdoc at Harvard Medical School, uh, where I really learned a lot about uh, uh, brain imaging and how we can use uh, different technology. Uh, at that time, technology was not that cool, and we didn't call it digital health or digital therapeutics. Uh, but it was still very interesting technology, and we tried to use this technology to help people with neuromuscular disorders like uh, traumatic brain injury and stroke. And uh, then I expanded even the, the, the use of technology in clinical trials to the pediatric and newborn population where uh, we try to develop a special technology that will simulate mother's voice and heartbeat sounds inside the incubator of premature babies in an attempt to replicate the environment that they were supposed to be in, which is the womb environment. And uh, we um, did a lot of clinical trials and research showing that, that those babies who are exposed to maternal sounds are actually growing better, their brain is developing better, they gain more weight, and they have much less adverse events during their uh, hospital stay in the neonatal ICU. But really what drove me into the pharma and, and to uh, uh, clinical trials in, in the pharmaceutical industry and what we're doing now, decentralized trial, which is the topic of today, th- this was really driven by my first pharma position, uh, Pfizer. It was an amazing company to work with. I had a lot of um, learning uh, opportunities, uh, warning, uh, working with um, a great uh, people uh, and leaders in the field. Uh, and this has really led me to what I'm doing today as a consultant, working with both pharma companies and companies in the digital therapeutics and digital health space. Well, Mira, I know you said when we uh, were prepping for this podcast that we could spend three hours just on your history, and I'm already entrenched wanting to learn more. Looking at decentralized trials specifically, that's a not really a new term, but it's a term, as you just said, is kind of the hot term right now uh, as we look post-COVID and, and as we had to make massive changes over the last year and a half in how clinical trials operate. When you think of decentralized trials, what really is that? You know, what does that term mean? for the future of, of clinical research, clinical trial operations? 
Sure. Uh, you know, the, the term, the terminology is actually important here. Some people uh, call it virtual trials. Some people will call it uh, remote trials. The FDA has started to sort of adapt the, the word decentralized. I personally am not a big fan just because of the DE. Uh, there are a lot of words in English that when you put the DE before them, it's sort of uh, convey a, a negative message. But in this case, we're not really trying to say anything negative. We're actually saying that by decentralizing, we're improving, but it can potentially uh, mislead. You're right. The concept of decentralized trials uh, is not is not new, but I think COVID definitely was a game changer here. I remember around a um, couple of years ago, not too long ago, when I was trying to talk about using technology for uh, remote patient monitoring, and I was talking to a lot of uh, teams who were doing clinical operation, and we talked about e-consent and uh, screening and enrollment uh, completely remotely and have a sightless operation, right? We don't need the site. You can enroll patients anywhere in the world and you don't have to bring them to the clinic. You actually collect data in the real environment where they live in the context of their daily living. You can be there 24 seven. And instead of taking snapshots in the clinic, if they come to visit uh, for a physical visit every three months or every six months, and you would get a picture of how they are doing, that picture could be very misleading because there's so much happening in between. And the alternative where you can actually use wearable technology uh, or use the phone data from the phone to, to track uh, the, the health status of patient, and you can be there 24-7 every day. I would just say, why compromising on a snapshot, on a picture, when you can get the whole movie? Yeah. And you can see really how the patients are doing every day, their ups and downs, and that also allows you to use machine learning and AI and a lot of algorithm development to really look at those patterns and put all the pieces together, which is really the future of medicine. This is really the, the way we should reimagine clinical trials. I'm not saying not bringing patients to the clinic at all. This is not an, a binary decision. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to learn or to know how somebody is feeling, the hospital is not necessarily the right place. It may be the right place for a blood drawing, yeah, the likelihood that, that somebody will, will relocate the MRI machine into your uh, apartment building is, uh, is very slim, right? So you, for that, you will have to go to the hospital. But we can definitely minimize those visits to the minimum necessary. So COVID was a game changer. Those people who showed resistance at the beginning were skeptic. We're not sure if this approach will actually stick and survive. COVID uh, made it almost uh, impossible for patients to, to come to the trial for obvious reasons. And a lot of pharma companies wanted to COVID-proof their studies. They wanted to keep their studies going. And they ended up adapting the decentralized approach, whether they wanted or whether they like it or not. They just had to do it. And then they saw that the beast is actually pretty beautiful. It's not, it's not that bad. And there are a lot of actually benefits to the centralized trial that they uh, didn't see before. Amir, I love that. And you, and you touched on a couple of things there. I've been talking with some others in this space as well, and, and they, they kind of agree on that decentralized word where it's a, it's a tough word to come across. A, because it, it does have that D in front of it. 
And then the second thing is, it's a foreign word to patience where it's like, what does that even mean? And I think I was talking with Michelle from Bayer who leads their innovation group. And she said, they're really leaning into uh, flexibility and optionality is kind of some words that they're toying with because it makes it a little more like, Hey, this is a flexible approach to clinical trial. And so I love that you honed in on that. And I think Amir, what comes to mind for me is how important technology becomes with the amounts of data. You talked about that movie and you know taking the snapshot versus now it's all data all the time. How do you separate the noise from the real things that need to be matched? I think is going to be really important as we think about the volumes of data that could be starting to be generated around clinical trials. And I'm sure that's something you're working on as well. But Amir, I know when we talked previously, we talked a little bit about how all of these pharma companies, research sites, and Florence works with a lot of them, we see everybody kind of approaching it a little bit differently. It's, it's kind of, we're going to do this thing, we're going to do this thing, we're going to do this thing. What does it look like and how do we create some shared learnings between companies that are, that are approaching the decentralized trial space? What does that look like to start creating some operational, you know, yes, there's the, and you and I talked about the mo- molecule side that we kind of have the, the secrecy around, but how do we create this operational efficiency side? What are your thoughts there? I'm glad you you brought up Michelle because she she's a great colleague, a great uh, a very good friend, and a very innovative uh, and visionary leader. Especially what I like about her is that she brings the patient experience and she put it really in the center, uh, listening to patient voice for real. Uh, and unlike some uh, companies who may say that they listen to patient voice, but in reality, they uh, take those notes, they shove them into a drawer, and they're not really using those notes to inform and change the design of their, their clinical trial, which I think is a mistake. And that's the key for the consortium collaboration between pharma. I agree, pharma should and need to, to compete the competition is good for for drug development overall and confidentiality is important we should not know about the assets the clinical assets but when it comes to operation how we do clinical trial that should be a company agnostic or even drug agnostic because patients are patient it doesn't really matter matter if it's an alzheimer patient parkinson patient cancer patients they overall have the same or similar needs, and and they would appreciate more flexibility, as you mentioned, in in the clinical trial, and they would uh, appreciate listening to their preferences. And this is where where pharma can do better, I think, by, by doing two things. The first one is work together collaboratively, share information, especially about what didn't work, you know, we, we live in the world of Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and we usually put the picture of us happy and from trips. And, you know, we don't, we, when we're sad or we, when we're in a funk, we're, we're not going to post anything, right? Uh, but this is not how we learn, right? If, if companies would share the learning and the takeaways from things that didn't work, uh, there would be so much learning that other companies, if this was an open source, could learn from each other and and even establish some, I don't want to say protocols, but establish some guidelines mm-hmm. that that could really help a lot uh, a lot of us uh, making it better and making it better for 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 more patients. Because every time you give a patient a slightly compromised experience in a clinical trial, 
you know, the likelihood that that patient would want to participate again is lower, and we don't we don't want to to do that. So, step number one is really collaborate and share information in a more structured way, and not just in reception and, and informal coffee uh, uh, meeting in a conference or something like that. So, like I mean, like a, an actual website that that mm-hmm. you can go and find this information. The other thing that I think uh, pharma should should be doing is learn from other industries. You know, pharma in general is sometimes characterized by being very slow to adapt, uh, big operation, and uh, protocol-oriented. And they often have, um, companies have SOP for almost everything. I mean, you want to uh, go from your desk to the to the bathroom. There, there is an SOP for that too, right? And and they're so afraid of protocol deviation that I think the mindset that I would encourage everybody is to build flexibility into protocols, into clinical trial protocols, that deviation will actually become the routine. And not an exception. It will actually, you will not have to file a deviation every time something goes a little different. This is where we can learn from other companies. I'll give you a quick example uh, from Amazon. Amazon is treating us as customers. That's how pharma should treat patients in clinical trials. They are our customers. In fact, if we don't treat them very well, if we will not be attractive to them, we will not be flexible with them, they may go with a competitive company and do their clinical trial, their decentralized trial that offers more flexibility. So if you take the example of how easy Amazon make it for people to return a package, mm-hmm. an item that they bought, they make it so easy that they almost beg to you <laughs> to return the package. They they refund the money right away. And when you want to return, they give you options. Do you want to drop it off at the Whole Food? Do you want to uh, drop it off at a UPS? And if you say UPS, it will immediately give you the, all the UPS stores around your location. Uh, you can put it in an Amazon um, locker uh, and you can even put it just uh, at the door and UPS will come pick it up for you. You don't have to box it and you don't have to label it. So it's kind of a wide glove treatment with a lot of options mm-hmm. for something that is rather very simple, just returning a package. And all the burden, all the burden of how exactly the package is going to get back to Amazon, all the burden falls on Amazon, not on the customer. The analogy in a clinical trial is, for example, um, say we have a cancer patients in a clinical trial, and as part of the trial, there are schedule of activities that a nurse should come to your to the house and draw blood from the patient. But uh, for whatever reason, uh, this is an elderly patient, and he happens to be in the area of Mass General Hospitals because he is visiting his grandson today. He's driving from Connecticut, and he's calling the clinical trial coordinator and say, hey, guys, I'm actually going to be there nearby the hospital. I, I prefer to go in and get the blood drawn there. We don't want to intimidate the team and say, oh, this is going to be a protocol deviation. 
right? Because according to the schedule of activities, you must do it at home. So mm-hmm. right, it creates some burden. The pharma will have to cancel the nurse. They'll have to maybe make up a quick appointment to accommodate the, the blood drawing in the hospital. But this flexibility is possible. Mm-hmm. It's doable. It's just tiny little example that if you build the flexibility in the language of the protocol that says patient may draw blood either at home or at the hospital, you build that flexibility for almost every procedure and for every wearable sensors that they might need be wearing or for every data collection. Or There are so many things that we can do better for patients. Uh, and I think this is, again, something that pharma should work together to change the mindset of being so strict about the operational aspects of clinical trials. So many strong nuggets there, Amir. I think the the burdenless is so important. And and we think about that, you know, at Florence from the principal investigator side, right? Like how do we make the sites experience less burdensome? And I think this is now extending that to the patient. And I think the example I used with someone recently is, you know, some of our EDCs and, and EMR, EHR, even a highly trained physician gets lost in trying to figure out how to use it. Now imagine asking a patient to say, hey, yeah, here you go. Use this tool and, and track all your own, your own vitals. How much more we've got to think about that user experience uh, now that we're inviting patients into the ecosystem beyond just showing up for the appointment as, as there really is. And I think that other thing you mentioned is decentralization or whatever word we, we all land on is more than just getting the right technology in place. It's rethinking and reimagining how we design protocols, how we how we design trials. And I love that that's something you honed in on. So Amir, I know that pediatric clinical trials is something that you have a, a background in, a history in, both from the scientific world and now really thinking about it from the decentralized side of things. How do pediatric trials and decentralized trials really start coming together to create more access and more capabilities? So I'm really glad you you asked me about pediatric trials because I think it deserves much more attention. Um, when I was a professor of pediatrics at Harvard, I, you know, the first thing that I learned is that children are not small adults. So it's not like that you can just shrink and extrapolate from adult to pediatrics and do the same thing. It's there is no copy paste. It requires a different approach. The reason it requires a different approach is because you cannot uh, view the patient themselves alone because it's a patient and parent diet. This is a child and parent diet. The, the person who's actually signed the consent form, the person is not the patient. It's the parent signing on their behalf. There are a lot of activities during the trial that the child has to do, but the parent has to supervise. So, for example, if you think about platforms that helps with monitoring the compliance of patients. So who are you going to send the reminders and notification? Are you going to send it to parents? Are you going to send it to the kids who are participating in the trial? Are you going to tell on the kids <laughs> to the parent that they are not doing a good job wearing a wearable device or something like that? But it goes even beyond it. You know, it starts with the consent form. I don't think, you know, digitizing a consent form and just making a PDF out of it, uh, fits uh, the the purpose of of a consent form, especially for pediatric trials. I really want the kids to to be able to understand 
what they are committed to. Mm-hmm. A lot of the platforms, either from, from Florence or from, from a lot of other companies, are designed for adults. And, and there is room, in my opinion, to solidify this and adapt it to the pediatric population by, by bringing the right expert to the table and making pediatric version for every platform so we can really put patient in the center of it. I love that, Amir. And, and thinking about, you know, even at Florence, right, as we think about innovation and, and building new products, who do we invite to the table to think about that design? Hey, let's pull outside of those that have a, a deep knowledge here. Absolutely. Uh, and I think, Amir, that's a great reminder for tech, the tech vendor side of things is to think yeah. about how we're designing software solutions for all stakeholders in the clinical mm-hmm. trial. So we do, you know, at Florence, our goal is to give more time for who matters, the patient. How do we actually do that for, right. the, for the research sites, the pharma, the sponsor, CRO? Right. Um, and, and also it doesn't cost much to, to make like an animated video, like a 60 second video that sort of uh, uh, convey the message of the trial, why we're doing, what are the procedures, in a kids-friendly uh, way. I mean, honestly, even as an adult, I would appreciate that, right? But this is something that I think everybody would would encourage, appreciate, and th- that's a game changer, especially if you already use an electronic platform, a digital platform. Why not taking advantage of that and plug in a movie or a video into, into the consent form or into the screening or enrollment process and so on? Amir, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. I've got two final questions that are off topic a bit. You know, the first is, and I like to ask this of everybody, the first is assuming that everything works great, right? Technology is firing on all cylinders. We've, we've changed protocols. We've, we were able to make all the, th- all the things we've talked about today a reality in 10 years. What do you hope is really the big moment, right? That says, wow, we've done it. Like, wh- what is that outcome, right? Like, yeah, there, there's the small outcomes of we made it easier, we, we had less deviations. But at the end of the day, in 10 years, what is that big thing that we hope happens in the research industry? I hope we're not going back. As, as Craig Lipset keep, keep saying that this is here to stay. I'm sure that in 10 years, it's going to look different. I, I honestly not exactly sure how are we going to perform clinical trial in 10 years from now? But the digital platforms will be more interactive and will probably rely much more on data that is collected from the patient's phone, a BYOD model. There will be many more health apps that collect information about how the patient's doing and the digital choices that the patients are making on a daily life, what kind of music they listen to and how that music relates to their mental state, right? What kind of uh, to-do list they are, they are writing and how does that relate to their uh, uh, progression of Alzheimer? What kind of uh, movement they are performing with their phone? Is the phone jitter when they type in or not? And how does that relate to their progression of Parkinson? Uh, how much they are moving in space? right? Uh, you can get the GPS data and measure, like, are they actually in traffic? Are they driving? Or are they walking? How is motor function for them? Uh, and how does that relate to the progression of their uh, ALS? And the last one is even, what is the weather in the area that they are uh, at? You know, it's really easy to pull the weather information and the air pollution uh, in, in that location and how that information correlates with their symptoms of asthma. Mm. 
the smartphones present a huge opportunity to collect data from people about their digital choices and how these digital choices are driven by their health status. This is something that I think we'll see more and more in clinical trials in the future, where patients will own the data. Patients will also have the opportunity to get some of the data back, something that we haven't done very well in, in most trials. We keep it to ourselves. Patients deserve to have data back. And I think we'll see it much more uh, the phone will play a bigger role uh, in, in clinical trials. We'll not see many provision phones anymore. Hardware will probably uh, uh, fade out and software will, will take over. So Amir, you know, the, the final question here, for someone who is 10 or 15 years or more behind you in their journey, what, is, what advice would you give them on be thinking about this, be doing this, be trying this in order for them to make a big impact on research? I do feel that that question becomes less and less relevant uh, because a lot of people are actually getting on board and becoming part of this big digital transformation. It's really hard to resist. However, I do agree with you that some people are still a little behind. Uh, we might have narrow-minded colleagues here and there who are emotionally attached to the old-fashioned way and they believe that the way they've we have been doing things in clinical trials for 20 years or so should probably continue. They don't necessarily see the benefit of uh, digitalization. So uh, to those people, um, I try uh, I try to convince them in three different ways. The first one, I will have a very uh, candid conversation with them and ask them if you are a patient. Imagine you have to participate in a clinical trial. God forbid you had a disease or something. How would you like to be approached? Would you really like to go to the hospital every time? Would you really like to do all this travel? Would you really want to take uh, years until somebody finds you and screen you for a clinical trial just because it really requires an in-person visit in the hospital? Or would you prefer that people will find you through Facebook or through patient advocacy groups and you will immediately click on a link and get into a platform where, where you go on a telemedicine call and somebody immediately evaluate you. You don't have to wait in line. You don't have to eat the, the, the food in the hospital cafeteria while you are waiting for the doctor to see, right? So you just sit, sit at your home and get a telemedicine call and immediately go get an answer you can participate in a trial or not. When you present people, even something like that right away, and they can reflect on themselves and put themselves in the patient's shoes, I think they, from my experience, they usually get the understanding and the impact and the value of why this approach presents opportunities. If that's not enough, I would also say that, uh, especially in rare disease, but not only, the decentralized trial approach allows you to enroll patients everywhere and anywhere. Even if there is equipment to be sent to patients or training, you can do it in a telemedicine call. Every hospital now has a telemedicine platform. Every vendor has a telemedicine platform. Uh, people are using that on their phone. And why compromising on the enrollment of your trial by only keeping people from the Boston area, from maybe New York and Connecticut, 
who can travel to the site where you can enroll people anywhere in the world, increase your N in the study, and therefore bring the drug to market much sooner. You will save a lot of money. And simply by making your trial decentralized, you can reach results much faster and get to a much more diverse patient population. However, I do want to say that I did hear from a patient just a couple of days ago. He told me that, you know, Amir, before you jump ahead and say that the centralized trial increased diversity, you have to make, uh, you have to be aware that some patients in some rural areas of the world may not have access to technology, may not have a stable Wi-Fi at home, may not have the, the upgrade version or the recent version of an iPhone. So there is a chance that by decentralized trial, we are limiting a small number of participants from being enrolled. So it's something that we should keep in the back of, of our mind. Uh, but overall, in the big scheme of things, from a bird view, I think the centralized trial are doing a much better job and present an opportunity for uh, a way more patient-centric approach to the way we perform clinical trials. Well, Amir, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, as as I expected when we did our prep call, Amir, I think we could go for three or four more hours and, and have plenty of conversation, but <laughs> we won't do that today. Maybe we'll have episode two of Amir uh, sometime in the future. But Amir, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing some of your thoughts. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today uh, for the next phase, Exploring Innovations in Clinical Trials. We look forward to seeing you on our next episode.